Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition where we interview notable people from the world of real estate investing. Today is no exception. We have a great guest all the way from Curitiba, Brazil. Welcome to the show, Fernando Angelucci. Thanks for having me, Victor. Well, great to have you here. Now, Fernando, you've been in the self-storage game for a little while here, and we definitely want to talk about this. This is an asset class that's recession-resistant, and certainly an area that we're very active as well. But maybe before we dive into the details, perhaps give a little bit of your backstory and how you got to this point in your journey. Yeah. Like a lot of investors, I started off on the habitation-based side of real estate, uh, single-family homes, multifamily homes, and then eventually I was getting tired of the uh, the way that the tenant laws were going in the United States. So I decided to exit my multifamily portfolio and then reinvest into the self-storage space. Okay. Very interesting. And so if you think about the storage space, there's many different subclasses to that. There's boat and RV, there's self-storage. Much of the industry is largely still mom and pop, probably 70, 75% still a cottage industry, even though the institutional players have been making significant inroads over the last couple of years. What's your focus? Yeah, we actually play in most of the the verticals within self-storage. So on one side, we have vertical where we go and we buy value. We'll find mom and pop investors that are treating the operation more as a hobby as opposed to a professionally run organization. We'll buy those facilities, do value add on them, increase rents, drop expenses, And then we'll build them into larger portfolios of 10 to 30 assets at a time and sell them off to the next fish in the food chain there. We really like those assets because we can walk into some pretty heavy cash flow day one. We're typically buying them at anywhere between 33 to 50% of replacement value. But the problem with that side is that it's hard to build up volume. Mm -hmm. So each one of these facilities are in the 30 to 50,000 square foot range net rentable. So to increase our footprint, we started then going on the opposite end of the spectrum, which is building these, you know, fourth generation class A REIT grade facilities. Uh, They're typically anywhere between on the low end, 85,000 square feet to the high end, about 140,000 square feet. They're usually three to four stories tall, completely climate control with state of the art uh, technology. Yeah, we found as well there's a break point in around that 100,000 square foot size that below that it's very difficult to make the economics work when you start to factor in minimum staffing requirements and all of that. So I'm I'm pleased you said that because that's a, a very common mistake that I see a lot of rookie investors make when they get into the world of self-storage. They get the Excel spreadsheet to tell them what they want to hear, but it doesn't pan out in reality. Yeah, that's correct. You, you know, typically when you're operating the smaller facilities, uh, your expense ratio is much higher. Uh, we have created a system where we actually run those smaller mom-pop facilities in an unmanned fashion, uh, which allows us to keep our manpower costs pretty pretty low, our labor, labor costs. You know, as we've seen facilities at that smaller scale operating as, as high as 40% expense ratio when they're fully stabilized. Whereas on the other side, when you're operating these class A recreate assets, it's very easy to get into the, you know, the 28 to 30% expense ratio range. So that's one of the reasons we like that. However, uh, when the pandemic hit, uh, that's when we added our, our third vertical because we were having issues with supply chain shortages and then uh, supply pricing volatility. So because of that, 
we saw this opportunity where big box retail stores were starting to go belly up. And that gave us the ability to purchase envelopes at anywhere between eight to $20 a foot, which allowed us to drop not only our total project costs by about 30%, but it also allowed us to drop our procurement costs and timelines, as well as our, our construction timeline itself. Uh, to build a similar sized asset from a net rentable square footage standpoint, we went from you know 10 to 12 months down to six to eight months when we already had the envelope in place. I love it. So there's many different exit strategies when it comes to storage. Some people look to package up a portfolio and eventually sell it to those institutional players. Others are simply collectors and they want to buy and hold. Where's your focus? What's your strategy? Yeah, it depends on the vertical. So the mom and pop assets... I'm typically not a long-term holder of those assets because they're already pretty old. The maintenance starts to get pretty onerous. The assets that I like to hold longer where refinance out of a construction loan with maybe a, you know, insurance company or a CMBS product are, are the class A facilities, but not, not necessarily the three-story ones. So what we prefer to do for our buy and hold portfolio is build class A climate controlled storage, but all single story. Or if we have a lot that has a significant grade, we'll actually build a two-story facility on the grade so that you have basically two points of first floor entrances, which then negates the the need for an elevator or a lift, which then cuts down on long-term maintenance costs as well. So those are typically the assets that we like to hold are the, you know, no elevator, climate control, class A, brand new built. And then everything else we usually will package up and sell to the next person in the in the chain. We've seen that a number of primary markets are starting to get saturated. If you think about you know, all the major cities, if they have an NFL football team, chances are it's overbuilt in terms of self-storage. Where are you finding opportunities where there's still a supply-demand imbalance, or at least in your favor? Yeah. So we're not going to be the ones that play in you know the downtown top 50 MSAs. Typically, we're looking in the South and the Southeast, sometimes in the Midwest as well, but we're going maybe five to 10 miles out from the city center to what I would call the exurbs, if you will, the, the line between the suburbs and the rural areas where you're starting to see a lot of the larger home builders coming in and putting in 300 to 500 unit developments or housing developments. Because with storage, unlike some of the other asset classes that you've talked about on the show, it takes a while to, for them to lease up. Uh, we're typically factoring about 12 months for construction and then another 36 months to 42 months, depending on the location for lease up. So we're always looking to see where's the population going to be five years from now, not where is it today. And that allows us to purchase land at reasonable costs, uh, typically dealing with municipalities that are much easier to work with on the pre-development zoning um, and permitting process. And then by the time the asset is stabilized and ready to sell, we've already been built up completely surrounded by these, these residential developments. When you're looking at rooftops and looking at population, when you look at your market studies, those residents are not all created equal. One of your biggest competitors is the homeowner's own garage. But if they don't have a garage, then they're probably a bigger candidate for storage. Do you segment the market that way? or How do you look at the market to really assess the demand? Yeah, we've actually seen that when it comes to these 
call it their personal storage competitors, if you will. When you look at the studies that come out through ISS, Inside Self Storage and the Self Storage Association, what you'll notice is people that have storage space like garages, attics, and basements, they actually tend to be using storage at a higher frequency than those that do not have those items. Mm. And that's because they're typically buying more than what they can usually store. They're overestimating their storage space. These are typically the people that have multiple seasons worth of decorations that come in and out every three months. They use the the garage as a man cave, that type of stuff. So when we're looking at demographics, that's not as big a factor of, you know, does a house have a garage or not have a garage or is is it primarily, you know, high density multifamily or, or lower density single family developments. What we're looking for is the amount of population within typically a 15 minute drive time of our facility. We recently moved away from just using strict radius as the crow fly to more drive time because now that we operate more in the Southeast, you have a lot of significant impediments such as mountains and highways, water, you know, bodies of water. Uh, so we're typically looking for, you know, right now, 50 to 150,000 people in that market. 50 is a little low. The, the median income has to be pretty high for us to go that low in the population. Mm-hmm. Our median income requirements, we want to be within 60 to 140,000 per household. Um, and then visibility and traffic counts are, are still extremely important. Even though the, the industry is going in a very tech forward way, we find that more than 60% of the tenants that uh, come to our facilities and end up renting, they first saw us by driving by, uh, not by doing a search online. So, you know, we're typically looking for 20,000 vehicles per day on the curb cut within half a mile of an exit ramp of a highway, one mile, depending on the growth of the area. And with the land requirements, we typically, if it's going to be a class A build, I can get away with, you know, on the very small side, two and a half acres. I don't like to go over four stories because then the fire suppression ends up costing a lot more. And then on, you know, for me to be a little bit more comfortable, four to six acres is what we'd like. And then if it's going to be one of the properties that go into my buy and hold portfolio for the 20 year holds, 25 year holds, then I need, you know, six to 10 acres roughly. Yeah. So your metrics mirror an awful lot of what we see in our business as well. So that makes a, a, an awful lot of sense. Well, Fernando, if folks want to connect, if they want to learn more, what's the best way? Yeah. So typically people can go to our website, www.ss se.com. Another thing I usually do just to reduce the friction is I usually give out my cell phone number on these podcasts or put them in the show notes if you'd like to do that as well. Always happy to chat about storage with folks and answer questions, whatever they may have. Fabulous. Well, love the perspective. Uh, You're clearly doing this at a very high level. And uh, for the listeners at home, definitely connect with Fernando Angelucci at sse.com. That link will be in the show notes along with his direct number. In the meantime, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.